Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buda. In this episode, we are covering The Lighthouse, which is a 2019 film directed by Robert Eggers. It was written by Robert Eggers and Max Eggers. Robert Eggers previously directed The Witch, which came out in 2015. That was his first movie. And these two movies share a lot of DNA. Both are movies about isolation and folklore, at least on a very broad level. And both owe, both movies owe a lot to Kubrick's The Shining, though The Lighthouse is maybe less obvious in that regard compared to The Witch. But I'd say that watching The Lighthouse put The Witch in, in a new kind of context for me, and that's always a lot of fun. Really, what I'm trying to say here is that Robert Eggers' first two movies, The Witch and the Lighthouse, would make for a great double feature if you're into that sort of thing. Right. Well, in this episode here, The Lighthouse was commissioned by a Patreon supporter. So I don't know if you're angling to get to do The Witch as well, Brandon. <laughs> uh, of course, these commission episodes are something we always love to do, something we're always thankful to get as well. But this one is, I think, especially exciting for us because it is the first movie that we've ever done. And I don't just mean you and me, Brandon, but like anywhere on the network, we've never done a movie. And I will say that regarding movies... I am kind of a weirdo in that I don't really like movies. I mean, there's a reason I'm always making Star Wars jokes, and it's because those are basically <laughs> the only movies I've ever seen. But Brandon, you love movies. In fact, I think maybe you love movies more than just about any other medium for for storytelling. So I think this is a really awesome opportunity for, I don't know, you maybe to see if you want to do a movie podcast or something like that. It's definitely in the works. Yeah, I love movies. I've seen thousands of them. Uh, I, I don't know if it's my favorite medium for storytelling, but in terms of visual medium, I think it's it's among my favorites. I will watch just about any movie uh, just because I love them. And so this is really exciting for me. And hopefully uh, this can be a kind of test run for us to figure out maybe maybe some work out, you know, how a movie podcast might look, either if it's uh, something closer to your podcast, ATAS, where it's just critical reviewing, or I uh, drag you into something, you know, once every <laughs> couple months, and we talk about a movie that I make you watch because uh, you only you've only seen Star Wars. Right. So. <laughs> we'll see how we'll see how all of that develops. Well, that would certainly be good for me. I mean, that's been one of the beautiful things about this podcast network in general is is getting to to read or engage with all sorts of stories across media that I otherwise would not, or at least otherwise wouldn't make the time for, because, you know, I think we all know that life can get too busy for reading and uh, pursuing interests and hobbies. But on the note of trying things out, right, the format of this episode is going to be a little different from what we usually do here on Elder Sign. It's also going to be different from what Valerie and I usually do on Lower Decks as, as well. So instead of doing a scene-by-scene -scene recap, I'm going to offer a bit of a synopsis, and, and then we'll chat about that as we go. And then at the end, we'll have some questions. We'll offer up some different readings of the film. And I think there are a lot of potential readings of this <laughs> film. But before we get into any of that, we really need to talk about the sensory effect of this film. One of the first things that I noticed while preparing for this episode is how much more sensory, I guess, the, the the experience of film is over the types of TV that Valerie and I cover, or at least maybe the way that Valerie and I cover 
Star Trek. On Lower Decks, right, we really only focus on the story with maybe the occasional break to talk about some kind of effect or an acting choice or, you know, the theme music. Actually, we love talking about the theme music. And and really what it amounts to, at least what I noticed here prepping for The Lighthouse, is that Valerie and I could basically just be working from the scripts for Star Trek episodes without actually watching them. I mean, that would be kind of dull. We're not doing that. But we really are focused on what are the characters saying to each other. But we couldn't do that with the the lighthouse, right? The look, the sound, the dialect of the dialogue, all of this is a huge part of this story. It just would not be the same experience to talk about the script without seeing the the film. So I think what we need to do here is to start by going through some of the the technical and and narrative aspects of the film. Uh, And I guess this is really maybe just the same thing as making sure that we point out like the person and tense and and voice and mood of of a story to look at these technical elements. But let's start with the film color. Right, the film is bl- is black and white, and it, the the way that the movie opens is just a black screen uh, for a few seconds, and so y- you don't know what you'll learn in just a few moments uh, in the in the way the film is presented. That the aspect ratio is like four to three, which is like your typical television aspect ratio from the old days of television, and the movie opens with this black and ambient soundtrack, and then it goes to titles, and then it goes to the sound of seagulls. So we're getting sound titles, no real information that that is no, and and the movie's not really giving us any information other than a sort of soundscape early on and the title of the movie, and then it fades to gray. And this is where we see the aspect ratio for the first time. We get a contrast between the kind of letterbox edge of the screen and then the gray of the fog. But that could just be the gray of the sea and the fog. We still don't know that this movie's fully going to be black and white. And we continue along with the soundscape here. We get the sound of a foghorn, which becomes pretty much the the main soundtrack of the movie. And that's a, a, a diegetic sound, which means it's a sound that is something that the characters in the movie can hear. It's not a soundtrack for the audience. And then we move deeper into the soundscape with the sound of a ship uh, and chains clanking against the hull, moving towards uh, the camera. So the camera's kind of panning in on the ship on a foggy sea. And we don't even see the main setting of the movie for two minutes. So it's a the, the opening of this movie is really telling us to pay attention to sound, uh, pay attention to the characters. There's a two shot of the backs of the characters almost right away. And that's basically the movie. They are boxed in uh, by the by the film ratio. They are always going to have to be close together in order to make the film ratio work. We're not getting a lot of wide landscape shots. And it's just setting up what the movie is going to be. These guys are in close quarters and they're always going to be close to each other. And the light and the lighthouse in the main setting takes two minutes to appear. So while it's not. So that's the next thing that we're going to pay attention to is the setting. What does the lighthouse represent? What is it for these characters? So uh, we don't even get dialogue for almost seven minutes into the movie. We are just following these characters. And the first time we see them, is this 
really, it's almost a photograph of the two main characters standing next to each other. The younger character, which in the script, of the movie they're referred to as younger and or young and old uh we don't learn their names till 30 and 45 minutes into the movie the young character kind of watches the ship leave with some anxiety or worry and then Will- willem defoe's character the old character uh just puts his scrimshaw pipe in his mouth and that's pretty much our introduction to the characters and our introduction to what is going on in this movie. Yeah, let me uh, let me try to unpack some of what you just uh, just did there, Brandon. So you said the aspect ratio is 4-3. It is not 4-3. It is 19-16, which is actually much closer to being a square than 4-3 is, though you're right, 4-3 is the classic box that old school TV, like Star Trek The Next Generation or just Star Trek is in, but this is 1916, so it's it's even closer to being an actual square. This is a ratio that was used in film uh, really only very briefly from 1926 until 1932, so it has an old-timey look to it there for that. And 16.9 is the, the standard widescreen that we use now. It was 16.10 around the year you know 2000 or so, but the film, in addition to being black and white, is also a slightly different type of black and white film than we would use today as well. This is an orthochromatic film, and this is an older type of film. The black and white film that we use today would be panchromatic, all colors, right? And so what this means that it's orthochromatic is that it renders blues lighter and reds darker, and it actually makes the whole thing look more sepia than black and white. And so combining this with the aspect ratio really does make the whole thing feel old-timey. That's the phrase I'm going to use, even though I'm a historian (laughs) and should be better equipped with language than that. But it makes the whole thing feel old-timey to us, right? Even if you don't know the technical language or the technical difference between orthochromatic and panchromatic, you would be able to tell the difference between a photograph from now and a photograph from 1900. I mean, even black and white photographs. And this difference between the orthochromatic and the panchromatic is is part of how you would be able to tell that difference. And so even though we're not necessarily thinking about that as we are being exposed to the opening minutes of this movie, we are getting that feeling, right? That this is going to be a period piece. And we see that with the costuming right away as well, right? We can tell immediately that this is the late 19th century. And the idea is, right, this is it's uh, North Atlantic lighthouse keepers on an island. And so we're presented immediately as well that this is really a two-person play on a pretty limited stage. Although the Eggers make great use of the the filming location that they have and use a lot of different spaces in that filming location, you could actually film this almost on a stage with like a single light as a two-person play. Right. The only things you'd miss if you were filming it on a stage is the representation or the presentation of Robert Pattinson's character, who is almost always seen in action. He is always working. He is always doing something except when he is eating with Willem Dafoe's character. So there's this uh, activity that's always taking place with the young character, except when he's kind of frozen almost in these dinner scenes with the older character. 
Right. I mean, I would probably only just shovel food into my mouth as well if I were sort of trapped on an island with Willem Dafoe, who's insisting on talking <laughs> like a pirate for a month. <laughs> just, uh, I think Willem Dafoe talks like a pirate was the original name for uh, for this film. Is that's a big part of it, right? Is these these accents, these uh, working class New England accents that that do uh, you know? I have no idea how authentic that is. I don't know what sort of dialect coach they might have worked with or dialect historian, but they sound a little bit Cornish, which is the the classic. Uh, pirate talk is this sort of Cornish accent. And uh, and that really worked for me. The, the acting from both of these actors is absolutely superb. And uh, to be able to, to pull off doing that dialect with also all of the emoting that is going on with also uh, strange film and strange uh, aspect ratios, which required physical presence of the camera and lights and so on in ways that are not normal for a film shoot. Uh, they had to do this acting in strange dialects under also unusual filming circumstances and managed to pull it off brilliantly. It's a, it's a real triumph. The performances, I think, are the real highlight of this movie. And I'm, I'm really glad you pointed out the accents here. Robert Pattinson has a more kind of North Atlantic accent. It, he almost sounds like JFK or parodies of JFK throughout the movie. And uh, Willem Dafoe, it does talk exactly like a pirate. And <laughs> it, it, at least for Robert Pattinson's character, the young person's character in this lighthouse, this is old-fashioned. It's affected in some way. And that's a big part of the background conflict that permeates the air, that, that really permeates the, the world of these characters, is that they both think each other are frauds in certain regards. And the accents are, are part of that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the setting and the filming location too, right? The the setting here is an American island far off the coast of Maine, right? They're 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 uh, they're going to be stranded. That's going to be the the plot here. But they actually filmed this in Canada. It was actually filmed in Nova Scotia uh, on an island, but uh, but in Canada, not the United States. And the the setting here is is really stark. It's really bleak. I think it's also really beautiful. And I, I'm a person who is drawn way more to the west than to the east of North America. I far prefer mountains to, to oceans. I even prefer deserts to oceans. But this, this is definitely someplace I would like to visit. And the landscape here is a big part of the feel of the film. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, Robert Eggers built the set for this movie, the lighthouse, the house, everything. Uh, this was a location they found and then built on uh, and shot the majority of the movie on location. So uh, I can't imagine being there uh, for this long period of time. <laughs> and I wonder if, if part of the choice to use this black and white was that was so that they could maybe seamlessly blend in what felt to me like uh, stock footage of a raging ocean or something like that. I don't know if they did use stock footage for this movie, but it certainly felt like they did, and it would absolutely fit with the time period that this... of The time period of film... Um, that this movie is trying to evoke. The use of stock footage was the norm. If you could just toss it into a film and you can, you know, for a long time, you could always tell the difference between stock footage, uh, which is basically footage sitting in a library somewhere that you can pull and use for your film and add it to the film. I, I don't know if you got the sense the stock footage was used in this movie for some of the shots of the ocean, but I certainly did. And it, and it worked to get some of these beautiful shots of just the raging ocean. 
Yeah, I don't know if those were actual stock footage or if it was new photography that they took for the film, but you're absolutely right to to think about if we're if everything is pointing to, hey, this is meant to evoke a film circa 1930, that that's absolutely how films in 1930 would have been done. This was the whole deal with the, what really becomes the, the studio system is that the studios have these libraries of films. They've also got their own orchestras, their own writers and directors who and actors who are all under these long-term contracts. And the idea is to, to be an efficient factory of film. And it does have some of that feel about it for sure. One of the things I love most about this film is the sound. I mean, the foghorn that you mentioned already, Brandon, is just brilliant. And the fact that that's really our first exposure to anything happening in the film is this foghorn. But it does have a musical score as well that I think is is quite good. Uh, it was the music was done by Mark Corvin, who I guess did The Witch as well, and has done a number of projects. The thing I'll say really about the music, which is going to sound like damning with faint praise, but but really is is not, is that. I wouldn't want to listen to it on its own, but it is perfect for the movie. The film score is perfect for the movie. It doesn't intrude upon the movie at all, which is what you want in a great film score, especially for a film like this. You almost don't even know where the music is because it blends the use of the foghorn, the sound of the foghorn throughout the soundtrack. And that that's another reason because I that's another reason I wouldn't want to listen to this <laughs> soundtrack by itself <laughs> is because I don't know if the soundtrack actually includes the foghorn <laughs> or if it does not. And I you know I have this note in my notes for this episode about how I don't I don't know if the sound if the foghorn becomes non-diegetic. That is to say, that is part of the soundtrack that the audience hears. The characters don't. And that's a brilliant use of that sound throughout the movie because we don't know at what point the characters stop hearing the foghorn because they stop reacting to it. And the way it's integrated into the score makes it unclear to me if it's part of the score. Uh, And so we're just hearing it as this intrusive sound. But the characters have been on this island for so long that they no longer hear it. And I think that's a brilliant use of of the soundscape of the movie and and the foghorn is maybe a the sound of the foghorn is maybe a way you can track the characters particularly Robert Pattinson's descent into madness he no longer even hears the sounds that drove him insane or made him question his choices early on in the movie and I, I really think that's uh, that's brilliant from a sound design and score perspective And something similar is going to happen with the light from the lighthouse as well, where as I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking, why is no one wearing sunglasses or, you know, some sort of protective goggles while they're in the lighthouse? They don't seem to really even notice the light anymore either. So we've got the two things that this island is for, the light and the foghorn, right, which are both tools to warn ships that, hey, you're going to crash into land if you, you know, keep going this direction. And which is really just which is to say that there these avalanches of sensory input of of vision and sound meant to carry over great distances to warn people and the people who are closest to them stop really even noticing that they exist and that is a really awesome touch here in the movie 
Well, let's get into the synopsis here. Before we do that, let me just characterize the movie by saying that it could be, and we are going to do it this way, it could be divided into two halves. There's the half of the movie before the storm, before they get stranded on the island, when they're just here working their four-week shift as planned. And then there's the second half of the movie after the storm when they are stranded. And uh, there's a real break between the, the first and the second half. So uh, let's go through the, the first half here. We'll do this in a couple different chunks and we'll stop and, and talk about them as we go. So we do get this opening with the black and the foghorn and this arrival on the island, as, as Brandon talked about already. And then we are introduced to the small house that they're going to be living in. We see that they're going to have to share a room with terrible mattresses, uh, chamber pots, no privacy, (laughs) no privacy from each other really at all for the next four weeks. And I think that's something that's going to be important to keep in mind. And Robert Pattinson's character, uh, we'll call him Winslow for now, he finds a carved mermaid tucked into a hole in the mattress, uh, the mattress that will be his. We also see him at work. Uh, He's shoveling coal into a furnace to power all of the the lighthouse stuff. And it is very hard work. It's definitely a, a job that I would not want, even though I might like to visit this island for a few days. I would not want this job. And all of this is done silently. We do not get any dialogue until we are seven minutes into the, the film. And in fact, the first dialogue that we get is Willem Dafoe's character. He's called Wake. Uh, the first dialogue that we get is Wake making a toast at their first dinner together. And it is a really creepy toast. I'm going to read the, the dialogue here. Should pale death with treble dread make the ocean caves our bed? God who hearest the surge roll, deign to save our suppliant soul. And these are lines that come from a a poem by Lydia Sigourney, who lived in the first half of the 19th century and wrote a lot of poems about death. That was a hip thing to do in the 19th century. But what matters here is that the first words spoken on screen in this movie invoke both death and dread. And uh, guess what? That is what's going to happen in the second half. This is going to be a movie about death and dread. There is an enormous amount of foreshadowing in this movie that I really only caught during my second watch. Just a huge amount, almost excessive amount of foreshadowing. One thing I want to point out, uh, because maybe it'll contribute to our readings of the film or potential theories that people have about the movie. And, you know, there's people who write conspiracy theories about movies in order to make sense of them the same way people do about political events or whatever. (laughs) Um, one of them is interesting, though, and, I, and I'll wait till the end till we get to it. But we, we see here that Pattinson's character, the young character, smokes a, a cigarette uh, and Defoe has a pipe. At some point in the movie, they're going to trade um, their tobacco apparatuses, I suppose we'll call them. Uh, that's an interesting moment. Uh, and another thing I want to point out here is that there are a lot of locked doors and uh, the young character cannot open them. We also see a uh, setup for a recurring joke in the opening of the movie, which is Robert Pattinson hitting his head on the ceiling as he's going to the bedroom. And I, I certainly thought that this was going to be a recurring joke that leads to him just going crazy. Like he, he can't get into his room without hitting his head. This does not become a recurring joke. Instead, we see Robert Pattinson's character, the young character, going into his room. We think he's alone. But then the sound of urine hitting a chamber pot is heard and this is another great use of the sound editing of this movie which is really remarkable and no one is visible and then we see that Willem Dafoe's character the old character is revealed to be using the chamber pot then he leaves the room and 
farts. And that's the recurring joke. So it's kind of this great little <laughs> bit of comedy. And this movie does have an enormous amount of comedy in it, I think, uh, though it's dark comedy. And and uh, I like the way that I'm set up for one type of joke uh, that I think, yeah, this is going to drive this character crazy. But the real joke that drives the character crazy in the film is Willem Dafoe's character uh, constantly farting <laughs> it's just it's just ridiculous right i mean look if you are going to write a story that imagines hey what if hp lovecraft had written the shining and set it on a new england lighthouse uh you got to put some fart jokes in there it's the only way to break that tension right i think i think this is known this is universally known well we get some some character tension as the story goes uh, and, and really it's just right at this moment of the toast because winslow doesn't want to drink it is clear right away that he has had a problem with alcohol abuse in his life and that he does not trust himself to have alcohol even once. Wake, on the other hand, has his own complications. Uh, his style of leadership is to belittle and humiliate Winslow. Uh, I'm sure that'll turn out just fine. That's definitely what they taught us in the army. And uh, he's also very jealous of tending to the light on the, the mid-watch, which he regards as his own special domain. Though we do also learn that Winslow would like to see the light. I mean, I suppose I would too. If I were going to be a lighthouse keeper, I might be interested in seeing the light at least once. Uh, also, Wake likes to be naked while he's up in the lighthouse, which is weird. But what is weirder is that while he's walking around the island, Winslow sees a dead body face down in a lagoon. And then we, the audience, see a mermaid swimming underwater and and calling, uh, making some kind of noise. And it seems to me anyway that this might be a kind of angry sound. So these are the first indications that this is going to be a weird story, right? That something strange, maybe even something supernatural or numinous or magical is going on around here. During this dinner scene, we learn that the water is rancid on the island, and that is going to present an obstacle for Robert Pattinson's character as he tries to maintain sobriety, though he suffers through it uh, for a little while until he can't. Then there's an important kind of language note. Willem Dafoe tells Robert Pattinson's character that he's going to be working the dog watch. And Pattinson's character, Winslow, says, dog in it, eh? I didn't know that's what dog in it meant. Uh, so that was exciting for me to learn <laughs> is, is you're working the dog watch. But that's a shift on a ship that is between 4 to 8 p.m. And it's usually split by people who are going to be working mid. So your shift might be from when you wake up to 6 p.m. And then the mid watch would be from like 6 p.m. until the morning if you're doing 12-hour watches. But Defoe says he's solely going to work the mid watch. So Pat Pattinson's character, the young character, will be on duty from whenever the day watch begins until 8 p.m. And it's a brutal schedule. And as you said, uh, the old character, Defoe's character, is a brutal tyrant. And he says, I, it's because I'm in control of the logbook where I write down what happens and I control your pay. You can throw the guidebook of how you're supposed to keep a lighthouse out the window. Uh, you will just do what I say and I'll make sure you get paid at the end of this. And that's awful. It's, it's an awful oppressive weight that Pattinson's character experiences right off the bat. And I can already tell that four weeks is going to be way too long to spend with this guy <laughs> who talks like a pirate and is, you know, this Captain Ahab sort of limp that he he constantly changes the story around the way the Joker does in, in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. 
about his origin. And uh, it's just, uh, he's they're already both intolerable people on some level, though Pattinson less so. One, I think because we're in his subjective point of view throughout the majority of the movie. Uh, and two, because he's mostly silent. He just doesn't want to make waves. Uh, but as you pointed out, Glenn, in the scene where Defoe strips in front of the light, uh, Pattinson is watching him. And Defoe offers something to the light, like he's he's giving some sort of tribute to it. And he's shot like he's in some kind of Ingmar Bergman film. So that's <laughs> a great bit of photography there. But this sense of voyeurism, of the young character watching the old character through uh, the hole in the timber in the roof or from the side of the shed, which becomes an odd sort of place for Robert Pattinson's character. There is an element of voyeurism where the young character is spying or voyeuristic towards the older character. And that's something just to keep in mind throughout the movie, something that really jumped out to me, especially on the second watch. Yeah, I have to wonder how much of all of that would have been abated if even on the first day, he had just said, look, I'm working the mid-watch, you're working the dog watch, which means you're doing all of the physical labor and your shift is going to be uh, 14 hours long instead of 12 hours long. But hey, you're the junior person here. I'm senior. That's just the way it's going to be. But hey, do you want to come see the light right now? Like you can see it this once now that we've gotten here and satisfy your curiosity. That might have been the way for everyone to stay alive throughout this film. You know, uh, that's just a, a sort of pro tip for any lighthouse keepers in training out in the audience. I don't know how many of you there are, but uh, there's a, there's our tip. Yeah, the yeah for all you wikis out there, uh, <laughs> something, something to think about. I do also want to comment briefly on this scene in uh, at nighttime with the timber and the dead bodies. This is something that we don't really make sense of until much later on in the movie. But the young character's experience of seeing the logs floating in maybe more of a river than an ocean, him going out to the dead body and then being dragged underwater and then being rescued by a siren. These are all images that get conflated and confused and turned into symbols throughout the movie. Um, And, you know, then Pattinson wakes up, Pattinson's character wakes up with water dripping on his head. Uh, And so he's maybe experienced this as a dream. He is dreaming about some experiences he's had that has a dead body and all of these heavy logs. And then he's combining it with his, uh, I don't know, lack of contact, his desire for sexual intercourse or any type of sex on the ocean, on the island. And these images are very confused to him. Uh, and continue to be so throughout the movie. And we see maybe these symbols interchanging uh, throughout. There's almost a, a kind of a talented Mr. Ripley aspect to Pattinson's, Pattinson's character. Um, and I will say one more thing regarding the voyeurism. When the young character is fixing the roof because of the water dripping on his head, he does see the old character sleeping and basically his, the old character's butt flap is open and it's like writhing and Robert Pattinson doesn't really look away. He's transfixed in a sense by this image. 
There, there is a lot going on in this movie about sexuality and the need for sex during the course of a month when you are isolated with only one other person around you. That's a big part of what is going on in the film. And I, I imagine that's going to be one of the readings that we offer at the end is going to be wrapped up in this sort of, of, of imagery here. But of course, another question that we are going to have, another reading that we might offer is going to be, yeah, but okay, was he really seeing a mermaid or not? Because this is not the last time that there's going to be a mermaid that we, the audience, at the very least, are seeing on the film. That's exactly right. And it's a, it's a big part of the movie. And another big part of the movie, uh, as we see with, with the young character doing all this work, is that the seagulls begin to represent obstacles to him. He externalizes his internal struggles and his difficulty to measure up to any sort of worthy person. Uh, and the first real representation we get of that is a seagull blocking a door as uh, the young character is trying to get coal into the coal room. Right. So all of this so far is the the setup for the film. We're about 15 minutes in at this point. And, you know, we've got the mood, we've got the tone of the piece. We've also got the central character conflicts. And so I think now I'm just going to zip us through the, the recap up until the halfway point, up until this storm. So Winslow works and Wake continues to ride him really hard. I even slaps him once. We do learn a little bit more about each of them over the course of this. Uh, Wake used to be a sailor until he lost his leg, though, as you say, Brandon, the story he tells about how he lost his leg, about even about what's wrong with it, is changing. It always changes. And Winslow, we learn, was a lumberjack, but he wanted to make more money. And this job sucks so much that it has to pay so well. Uh, we also learned that the man who used to have Winslow's job, the, the person who used to be the, the junior assistant to Wake, died on the island. He went mad, and, and Wake says that he was raving about sirens, merfolk, bad omens, and the like. And of course, we have seen merfolk or a siren or something as well, and maybe... Winslow has too. Uh, and Wake tells us that this other assistant came to believe that there was some kind of enchantment in the light. Uh, Winslow goes up to the lighthouse at night to, to check it out. This is part of the voyeurism that Brandon was talking about. And some kind of gross-looking fluid drips on him. And then he sees a large octopus tentacle just writhing around up there in the light room. So there's that. <laughs> we'll get into what's going on with that later. Uh, but then there are also the, the seagulls. There's this escalating encounter with a one-eyed seagull. Uh, Wake informs Winslow, who is new to this whole ocean business, of course. Uh, he tells him that seagulls are reincarnated sailors who've died at sea and that he had better leave them alone. And he certainly better not kill one because that would be terrible luck. But, you know, this is a story. So, of course, what he has to do is totally kill the one-eyed seagull a little bit later uh, and does this in a, uh, a visceral, really brutal fashion. This was actually a pretty disturbing scene to watch. And immediately upon this happening, immediately after this brutal killing of this one-eyed seagull, the wind changes. It's an almost cartoonish scene, really, with a, a weather vane that lets us know this. 
So uh, a storm's a coming, but that is all right because this is their last night here. The ship is coming to get them with a replacement crew tomorrow. And so finally, Wake even gets Winslow to drink that night, which is going to turn out to be a huge mistake because the storm is going to strand them here. And that is what we'll be dealing with in the second half of the movie. Uh, But before we get there, there is the, the next morning when Winslow finds a living mermaid sleeping on the beach and she screeches at him and he runs away screaming. There's an awful lot going in, uh, going on in what you just went through uh, as, as a recap, Glenn. But you did hit all of the main, all of the main points. I, I want to highlight a few things, which is that both characters are kind of masturbating in private, which is we, which both characters are masturbating in private. Pattinson has his shed where he goes to do this, and Defoe. It's unclear if he's and Defoe's character. While it's unclear if he's doing that in the lighthouse, if he has some weird sexual relationship with the light, uh, or if there's some other kind of darker ritual going on, or if Robert Pattinson's character is translating these images in his head with the tentacle and the slime, it's just it's gro- it's a grotesque scene. Um, but then we see with the older character riding the younger character in terms of the work and just telling him he's not good at his job. He's neglecting his duty. We're only seeing Pattinson's character working. So this doesn't read to us. There's a disconnect between what the characters are experiencing in the movie and what we are as all the audience is experiencing. There's a scene where the young character is polishing some cans in the shed, which must be some sort of euphemism. And (laughs) Defoe is watching him. Uh, But the real reason I think why the young character drinks is that a bird has died and been pecked apart in the cistern so that the cistern is now full of blood and viscera and Pattinson can't drink the water anymore. It's gone from rancid to being dangerous to drink and he kills the seagull out of frustration, out of an attempt to overcome this obstacle. But he's not actually overcoming an obstacle. He kills the gall out of anger and traps himself as a result. So there's there's maybe some symbolism going on there as well. And it's also at this point in the movie that we get the names of the characters. It's 30 minutes into the movie and we don't know these characters' names. And here, here we get these names It's also important to note that Pattinson's character, Winslow, doesn't see the mermaid until after he falls from maybe, I don't know, 12 feet off of a seat, a rope seat he's sitting on trying to whitewash the the lighthouse, uh, trying to whitewash the lighthouse. And also in that moment, we see a seagull picking at him as if he's dead trying to steal thread from his pants um and that's also foreshadowing for the way that the movie ends so the way that Agar, the eggers brothers have really set up why pattinson decides to take a drink he can't drink water anymore uh, are setting up foreshadowing are making us question what's going on in the young character's head and also the way that the young character winslow tries to overcome obstacles by killing all of this comes back in a major way in the in the second half of the movie right this incident with the the painting or the the whitewash in the lighthouse where he gets dropped this is really wake the the 
the Willem Dafoe character tormenting the younger character who he, you're right to point out that it's only later that we actually even learn their names at all. He just calls him lad all the time, but he's really tormenting him. He's holding the rope at the top of the lighthouse and is supposed to be, well, one, holding him there, but then also letting him down, which is a thing you're supposed to do gently, right? So that he can paint different levels of the outside of the lighthouse, but is clearly letting him down in this very jerky, harsh fashion on purpose, and then just randomly dropping him for his own amusement, which is an awful uh, thing to do. I mean, and and it turns out terribly, right? I mean, he does actually just let him fall 12 feet. He doesn't get sort of devastatingly injured by that. But still, this is a humiliating and painful thing to experience. And it's not the only thing. There's a, another scene where he needs to bring some oil up to the the lantern. He doesn't know what's the best way to do that. So he brings a very, very, very large drum of oil all the way up this winding staircase to the very top, only for Willem Dafoe to turn around and say, that's not how much oil we need up here. And in fact, that's a dangerous amount. So what you need to do is bring that back down and then carry up the amount that I need in this much smaller container here. And by the way, I watched you carry that whole thing up and could have told you this half an hour ago and saved you all of this extremely difficult backbreaking labor. And some of this feels like hazing. I mean, we've gone through similar things like this in the the military, but never in a one-on-one setting like this, where you're supposed to be a team, supposed to be a partnership, manning this thing, doing something that's really important, something that's about saving people's lives. And this doesn't feel like hazing then, right? This just feels like someone in power torturing someone who doesn't have power. A major part of the dynamic between these two characters is a static power dynamic. And and power dynamics really ought to be dynamic. If you're in charge of somebody, there should be areas where you recognize their capacity, capability to do good work, and you let them take that over, and you can look to them, even though you might be in charge of them for things that they're experts in or have what's going on, or recognize that they you know have a skill that you need. This is a static power dynamic, which is, uh, you know, essentially authoritarian. That you don't you don't question what the authority says, even if they're ex- clearly wrong. And this static power dynamic is always, always very dangerous for people to live in, in, in for in terms <laughs> of like both a regime, but also in interpersonal dynamics. But another major contrast between the two characters besides the fact that they are locked in the static power dynamic, except when they drink, is that the younger character respects the book. He respects the rules. He wants to do things by the rules. But Defoe's character, the older character, is rooted in tradition. And they are both too rigid in their need to have either the book be the authority or the tradition of light keeping be the authority that kind of rules their behavior and they're too rigid to find ways to make it work between them and so they're both kind of guilty of this posture towards what's more important is it the manual is it the lighthouse keeping manual or is it the traditions of keeping the lighthouse and that is a big part of their character dynamic as well that i think is important to to point out here 
And they don't talk about any of this at all. Like they never actually have any kind of airing of grievances. There's no way for them to have any conversation about how the work is is going, how they are functioning as a, a, a team. There is going to be a breakdown of this in the, the second half. And in fact, we should just move into the second half now because this is when the really weird stuff is going to start happening as well. So right away after this storm, we learn that there is a discrepancy in time. For Winslow, only one day has passed since the relief boat was supposed to come. But Wake tells him it's actually been weeks since the storm, since the the boat was supposed to come and didn't. And we, the audience, have no way of telling which it is. They are rationing food, but there is plenty of booze, and Winslow is just mostly drunk most of the time, uh, which maybe has always been true of Wake. In fact, I think it definitely has been true of the Willem Dafoe character Wake in this movie. But in any event, they do a lot of drinking together now, Uh, so a lot of dancing, a lot of singing. There is definitely some homoeroticism in many of these moments, and uh, as I said earlier, that is a part of a reading that we will have to take up in the discussion. Uh, And they do get into a fight then about also whether Wake's cooking sucks or not, which is funny. This is actually a really quite funny scene. But it then turns really serious when Wake curses Winslow. And I want to recite this because it is a big part of the Lovecraftian tone of this film. So here's what he says. And I am not going to do my uh, talk like a pirate. And I'm not going to do a Willem (laughs) Dafoe impersonation, though some of that might slip out. uh, But I will try to just do my own reading of this. Let Neptune strike ye dead, Winslow. Hark, Triton, hark! Bellow, bid our father, the sea king, rise from the depths, full foul in his fury, black waves teeming with salt foam, to smother this young mouth with pungent slime, to choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with bilge and brine and can scream no more. Only when he, crowned in cockle shells, with slithering tentacled tail and steaming beard, take up his fell befinned arm, his coral tine trident screeches banshee-like in the tempest and plunges right through your gullet, bursting ye, a bulging bladder no more, but a blasted bloody film now, a nothing for the harpies and the souls of dead sailors to peck and claw and feed upon, only to be lapped up and swallowed by the infinite waters of the dread emperor himself, Forgotten to any man, to any time, forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten even to the sea. For any stuff or part of Winslow, even any scantling of your soul, is Winslow no more, but is now itself the sea. So... This is this is what we get. This is just a speech in the middle of this movie, and they're arguing about cooking, and they're very drunk during this. But yeah, so the tone of this, the sense of this is maybe wake worships Cthulhu or something akin to it. And maybe that's why he's naked in the lighthouse, right? This is a question we're going to have to take up in the discussion as well. But also we we should say, wow, what a performance here. I mean, I've done no justice to this monologue at all, but Defoe was just brilliant delivering these lines. Defoe is incredible throughout this movie. I mean, it's just an, an incredible performance. And I would say if you're interested in like real actors acting, this is a movie like if, if film performance interests you where you actually get to watch a scene breathe and you see two people without cutting to like the mid to close up shot of one and then switching to the other. These guys are constantly reacting to one another and it is incredible to watch. I mean, this is in terms of film performance, one of the better movies that's come out in a long time. 
Uh, I will say we're gonna talk. I'll talk later about our favorite scenes. I'm gonna spoil it. This is my favorite scene of the movie. <laughs> uh, there, there's an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where Mac and Dennis have to move to the suburbs for a bet and see how long they can survive there. And Mac keeps on making a special macaroni and cheese recipe like every night, and they get into this exact same fight. And then it's revealed at the end that uh, Mac is just making like boxed craft macaroni and cheese. <laughs> um, but it's like that. I, I have to imagine that Robert Eggers has seen this and was like, that was a brilliant exploration of people being isolated in the suburbs and like falling into these domestic roles, like being locked into them. And the only, you know, now we see a power dynamic emerge where like, you know, Willem Dafoe's character, like like Max's character, can't handle being criticized at all, and gets into this big fight about what has to be terrible and boring and dreadful food. I mean, it's 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 awful. It's really funny. Another thing to point out in this scene is that they are on the opposite sides of the room from where their beds are. So we see earlier in the first night when they're smoking, when they're drinking. Uh, before the second half of the movie really begins, that they have switched their smoking apparatuses. So Wake is smoking cigarettes, the older one, and the younger one, Pattinson Winslow, is smoking Wake's pipe. So they've switched these kind of, uh, I don't know, icons of their identity in some way. And now, after weeks in, they are sitting on opposite sides of the room. And so there's some questions of like identity swapping going on here or identity merging and identity is a big part of this movie we'll see later on uh probably pretty soon that they have the same name basically the same first name and even their last names as they're revealed to us mean practically the same thing one means watch wake means you know like watch and howard as we'll see means like to guard or something like that so it's a kind of melding of identities that is intolerable to both of these characters glenn you also pointed out that there's a lot of homoeroticism here in this movie and whether it's born from uh sublimated desire or from loneliness and isolation or from the way that people need affection and human contact and the way these characters try to control that uh it, it, it's it's a core part of this movie there's a scene where they're both slow dancing and they almost kiss after being very drunk uh and this happens after Pattinson's character imagines the mermaid again and goes to his shed to take care of his, uh, I don't know, oil can polishing, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> um, and what we see in this scene, I, I do want to point out, uh, even though it's kind of an on-masturbation scene, and the Scrimshaw mermaid breaks. The object of desire, the object that represents uh, Pattinson's sexual desire breaks at this point in the movie. But what we see in his mind is a sort of montage that doesn't give us any sense of time where these images that we've seen before coalesce. The mermaid, sexual desire, and a dead body or a head, uh, a decapitated head that is not the same as the blonde man that we saw with the timber earlier in the movie, though we do see him in this uh, montage of images. 
But we see, again, the confusion of all these imagery and symbols. And I think what we're maybe we're led to believe is that Pattinson's character is dealing with some sort of trauma, but ultimately that that death, whatever it is, the killing, it excites him on some level. He's aroused by it, and he moves the... He, he, he locates his guilt to the part of his mind that's dealing with uh, eroticism and all of these issues of loneliness, need for affection, need for affirmation, and all of this is very confused for him. So whether or not we want to read these characters as being gay uh, or closeted gay in some sense, um, they're very confused about where their erotic desire is located. There's not a clear cut for them in their sense of the erotic. And that that's a big part of this kind of cascade of images that uh, Eggers puts forth during uh, another scene of Pattinson in The Shed. You've just used some Freudian language here, right? Things like sublimated, for example, and that is a big part of what's going on here, right? The way that sexuality is addressed in this film by the Eggers brothers is in Freudian terms. So really, when we do end up trying to give a kind of reading about this film that takes into account all of the the sexuality and sexual imagery, of which we have barely cataloged any of it, though we will go through more of it when we get there, is going to be done in Freudian terms. And one of the things then that is going on, thinking in Freudian terms, is that we know, right, we, we learn in this part of the movie, and we, we haven't actually quite gotten there yet, but we'll just do this right now, that Winslow, that Winslow at the very least has caused the the death of his co-worker when he was a lumberjack in Canada, uh, if not outright murdered him. We're never really clear on that ourselves as the the audience, that there's definite suggestion that he murdered this person and is dealing with the, the guilt of that. But it is also a question that we have to have about what was the nature of their relationship, which is really just to say, did they have a sexual relationship with each other or did, uh, did Winslow want to have a sexual relationship with this man and was denied that? Is that a potential motive for the killing that happened? That's certainly something that is hinted at in the movie. Right. And we'll see that this uh, man that we saw with the timber early on that's confused in all of these sexual images has bleached blonde hair, which at least at one point in uh, our own American culture was some light cultural coding for homosexuality. And so there's that kind of image wrapped up in this as well. And that's also why I brought up the talented Mr. Ripley, which is uh, essentially uh, about the same sort of questions that this movie raises identity uh stealing of identity and uh, closeted homosexuality or sublimated homosexuality so the 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 eggers know their references here and what they're doing to evoke the sense of homoeroticism which in freudian terms is uh though though it's widely been rejected is a form of narcissism it's a kind of uh, loving of the self that gets distorted. And I think that the way these characters' identities are merging speaks to that Freudian notion of homoeroticism or homosexuality. Well, I want to tug on the, the thread of identity, because that is really, I think, the big thing that is is going on that leads us into you know, the last act of the film, really, right? There are some some challenges to the identities of the, the characters. And gradually, we see that there are inconsistencies in the stories that they tell about themselves, right? 
As we've said already, Wake has at least two different stories about what is wrong with his leg. Uh, Winslow eventually even questions whether Wake has been the captain of a ship, which is a huge part of Wake's identity. But it seems like he might just be making that up, that he's never actually been a captain of a ship and maybe never been a sailor at all. And that this whole talking like a pirate business is just an act. And of course, Winslow isn't really Winslow at all. He's Thomas Howard. He's actually assumed the identity of Ephraim Winslow, whom he killed either directly or through deliberate inaction to save him. It's a little bit murky, which it is. But the two of them, Thomas Howard and then the real Ephraim Winslow, they did have a similar relationship that he and Wake have now, right? This was his boss and he ragged on him pretty hard. And he, at the very least, allowed him to die, if not outright killed him. And that is going on here as well, right? It starts with Winslow carrying a knife around with him and thinking about stabbing Wake. And then it culminates with Winslow murdering Wake. And I'm going to keep calling him Winslow, by the way, even though we know he's Howard. Now, Brandon, you've probably taken the better tack here of just using the actors' names or old guy and young guy. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> this all culminates with Winslow murdering Wake. But let's do some of the steps in between. So Winslow tries to take the dinghy out to just look for any ship that might rescue them, or at least him. But Wake comes running after him and shouts, don't leave me, and then smashes up the boat with an axe and then chases after Winslow with the axe in a scene that is straight out of The Shining. I think this is what you were talking about earlier, Brandon. But then when they talk about it afterwards, Wake says that that's not what happened. It was Winslow who smashed up the boat and Winslow who chased him with the axe. Now, that is not what we, the audience, saw, but Winslow is the one who seems really crazy to us. So which is it? This is a question we're going to have to answer, right? Is Winslow crazy or is Wake gaslighting him here? So we will talk about these things, but uh, let's recap the end here before we get to that. So Winslow is obsessed with the light, and he also thinks that Wake is out to get him. And maybe he is. So he physically overpowers Wake and then then takes the keys that that, uh, lock up the the light room. And then he buries Wake alive, except that he isn't dead. And a while later, he tries to kill Winslow with the axe, saying, the light belongs to me. But Winslow gets the axe and now very definitely kills Wake. And this brings us to the last part where Winslow gets up to the light. He stares at it and has an ecstatic response to it and then falls down the stairs. And then we see him the next morning, outside on the rocks, with one eye very badly damaged, and seagulls eating his guts. Because uh, that's what happens when you try to take a light that doesn't belong to you. We'll talk about that, too. Uh, and that is the end. And I think there is a ton to talk about. There absolutely is. I, there are a few things I want to point out uh, before we get into kind of our post-movie breakdown of some some of the things and, and discuss a little bit more. Uh, this dog business, uh, Tom, Tom Howard... The young one keeps getting called a dog. Um, And, you know, he has the dog watch. His old boss called him a dog. And he turns Willem Dafoe into a dog. This is another weird reference, I think, to The Shining, where we have the the bear suit guy and the man on the edge of the bed in um, The Shining in room 237. Um, There's very clearly, I think, a, a kind of a sexual connotation here with in the way that uh, Robert Pattinson's character literally makes Willem Dafoe act like a dog before he kills him. Um, and while he's burying Robert Willem Dafoe's character, 
Willem Dafoe gives another speech that I think keys us into what's happening on the kind of mythic or, or mythological level of this movie. He says, oh, what protein forms swim up from men's minds and melt in hot Promethean plunder, scorching eyes with divine shame and horror. And it's a great line. The speech goes on a little bit, but it's really this uh, reference to both Proteus and Prometheus that uh, lets us know more about the character dynamics in the movie. And in fact, Robert Eggers said in an interview that, you know, in reading a lot of Greek myths, he never sees Proteus and Prometheus hanging out together. And he kind of thought, well, what if we did that for a movie? Uh, It's kind of the basis for the creation of some of these characters. I think part of the reason why the young character kills the old character is that he has, you know, to quote the film, spilled his beans. Uh, He has confessed to this crime, this either murder by negligence or outright murder of his old boss. And now that that guilt is outside of him, now that he has somebody who holds that story, it's an externalization of his guilt. And Robert Pattinson cannot let Willem Dafoe live as a result. It's, In other words, it's another externalization of an obstacle uh, of the Tom Howard character, the younger character, becoming who he thinks he's supposed to become or finishing a task or whatever it is. There's always some obstacle. And he's externalized it again into Willem Dafoe. And we've seen before in the movie how this character, the young character, handles his external obstacles or thinks he views as external obstacles. Uh, It's murder, and it's often a brutal murder. There's a a dream sequence in the middle of all this drunken madness where they've begun to drink a terrible kind of moonshine where Willem Dafoe is naked and looking down at at Robert Pattinson's character who's kind of on the rocks and light is shining from his eyes. This is, this is uh, an image that references a painting called Hypnos by Sasha Schneider. This is a, a painting that's uh, this is a painting that was released in 1904, and we have the same sort of image at the end of the movie. And and I know probably a lot of people are wondering what does Robert Pattinson's character see at the end of the movie? Um, well, it's probably the protein forms. It's probably what. Willem Dafoe is describing. It's this extremely compact and very direct expression of all knowledge, of all life, of, of everything. It's too much to handle. Um, but then when we take in this character, when we take in this painting, Hypnos, we add this other element to it of the, of the dynamic of somebody shining light into somebody else's eyes. Um, and so it's an, it's an interesting image for sure. And I'm, had to do a little bit of homework to to find that this image is a reference to a painting of a painter who's been associated also with um, putting a lot of homoeroticism in his art. So there's one last thing I want to I want to talk about here, which is that in the first half of the movie we see Willem Dafoe basically locking things away. He's locking the top of great to get into the light of the lighthouse. He's locking the cabinet where he keeps his logbook. Basically, everything is always getting closed and locked. And in the second half of the movie, everything is being opened. And I think those are images meant to get us thinking about um, either identity or what Robert Pattinson's character is doing as a character journey 
in the movie, which is trying to get inf- more information in some way to see who he is in other people's eyes. Uh, and this image at the end of the movie is very Promethean as well. He's stolen the knowledge from Proteus and he's getting a similar punishment. And uh, yeah, that's that's the whole movie. <laughs> now we have a little more to talk about. Right. I want to dive into this this mythological reading of the film, but I will resist the temptation to do that right away because I think that we should establish some baselines, uh, of, or at least our individual baselines, and get all of that out in front of us before we offer some readings. Because there is the question of what is real and what is not real in the the film, right? It's a question of what actually happened. So the first question we have to ask is, is any of the supernatural stuff real? Is there really a mermaid? Are there really tentacles in the lighthouse sometimes? What's your sense of that, Brandon? I don't really think that uh, anything we get from Robert Pattinson's perspective, as I said, we are deep in his subjective space throughout the movie. I don't think that's meant to be seen as real. And there are a few reasons for that. One is one of the major mermaid scenes when Robert Pattinson is out in the shed and he's kind of experiencing these cascading and confusing images is it's clearly in his head. He is holding the Scrimshaw mermaid and imagining all of this stuff. The next reason why I don't think it's real is when we have Pattinson's character killing or brutally beating uh, Defoe's character before he makes him into a dog. He has this image of these tentacles behind him and Defoe's character is like the Neptune that he described in his cursing of Robert Pattinson for not liking his lobster. And I think that all of this is Pattinson's Pattinson's kind of subjective, deeply, this is really more Jungian, putting out of icons or images on people. He's doing a lot of projecting of the mythical onto the real in order to make sense of his isolation and the odd things that he sees and hears. The mermaid screeching is basically an amplified version of the seagull sounds. And Pattinson makes this noise himself. Um, And so I think there's just a lot of imagery and symbolism here that's more this sort of archetypal projection that Pattinson is uh, is engaging in. I don't know, Glenn, what, what did you think? Well, I would like to argue with you about this, but I just can't. I, I agree with you 100%. I also don't think that there are any actual mermaids or any actual tentacles in this movie. It is all in Pattinson's head, though I would love to hear a reading from from somebody, a listener, who thinks that that stuff is real and that there is actually something going on with supernatural creatures in this movie. And certainly I will say that when I saw the trailer for this movie, it was uh, something actually that uh, I don't normally see movie trailers, but uh, Brent Helt, my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, had sent me the trailer to this movie probably about a year ago, and it was definitely billing itself as Lovecraftian, as having tentacles in it, and there being a kind of monster stalking these guys in this lighthouse, which is not at all what it turns out the movie is about. So the other thing that we have to ask here, though, is can we trust what we see about Winslow's days, especially in the second half, right? Does he really find this head in a net, this head that he says is of the previous assistant, and he accuses Wake of having murdered the previous assistant, of decapitating him and throwing him in the ocean? Does he really find that? Is he really working all the time? Because 
Wake certainly says that he's not. This is what he puts in his logbook, that uh, Winslow is shiftless and doesn't work very much, but we see him working all the time. So which is it? Uh, does he really get chased by Wake with the axe, or is it the other way around? And I guess, right, these questions really are whose version of events is true, right? Is what we see on the screen true, or is what Wake says happened true? Wake throws something at uh, the young character while he's trying to talk the young character off the ledge in some way after he's been accused of murdering his second. Uh, though I, you know, a, a kind of reading I might have of the movie is that Wake was the second and the person he killed was the lighthouse keeper because he wanted to get into the light and his confusing stories about everything and what happened are really about himself. Uh, when we see Wake talk about what happened to his second, uh, about seeing the mermaids and needing to see the light and all this stuff, and the young character criticizes all of this folklore and mythic explanations, which I'll tell you what, when you are out and isolated somewhere in nature by yourself, uh, folklore and mythology make a, a lot more sense than when you're living <laughs> in civilization. And I think that's something that Ro uh, Robert Eggers is exploring in these movies. But Wake shuts down after being criticized, and he doesn't immediately explode. He explodes when the younger character talks about how it's not a big deal to kill seagulls. So it's kind of this delayed reaction of explosive anger that's probably rooted in the younger character's criticism of Wake talking about how real mermaids are and how there's real stuff in the light. Um, so that's that's a kind of maybe a reading I have of the movie. But there's another reading that Wake gives us in the in the text of the film that Tommy, uh, the young character, is still in Canada somewhere, and it's winter, and he's dying of hypothermia and frostbite, and this is a kind of life reckoning moment for him that he is experiencing death or dying he's mad with hypothermia and nothing is real and wake is just a projection of himself that that wake is a projection of the younger character i don't buy this explanation i think it's more of wake being really vicious and cruel to the young character but it's certainly a reading that we can look at as a way of explaining what's going on rather than doing the fight club thing where we get the cuts back of you know the character doing all this stuff himself and he's the only person on this island um we have uh, a much more murky situation where we're locked into one character's subjectivity and we don't get to know for sure if wake is even on the island at all and Tommy has split his identity in order to cope with this isolation. That was definitely a thought that occurred to me on, on my second watch of the movie, though I don't think that that is the case. I do think that both of these people are real, and I also think that they are really there. I don't think that this is a sort of death hallucination, a, a sort of reckoning of, of sorts. I think this is really happening. I'm a little bit torn about whether... I certainly don't believe that I certainly don't believe that everything that we are seeing on screen is literally true. I mean, I guess we've dealt with that already and just saying that yeah, there are no actual mermaids or tentacles in this movie, but other things as well. But I'm also not prepared to say that if that is the case, then what Wake is saying must 
on the other hand, be completely 100% true. I think that they are both living in their own subjectivities. We, the audience, see one of them directly, and then we hear the other one, but that neither of these versions of what's going on is really true. I like this idea a lot. I like this idea that Wake himself was actually the previous assistant, that he has done exactly what Winslow is doing now, like you know, six months ago or something, and has taken on this other identity. Is the, the limp is fake, actually, which it seems to be the case sometimes. He loses the limp from time to time. Maybe the whole the accent really is feigned, and uh, he's mimicking this person that he's killed. I like that reading a lot, though I don't think that that's I, I don't think I believe it, but I like that a lot. It would also explain sort of why he's gaslighting Winslow or why he's doing all of these things, because it then also suggests a real cycle of abuse, right, in which the abused becomes the abuser, though we don't need that to we don't need this reading of the story for that to be what's happening, because even if the story is simply that at some point Wake served as an assistant and was abused by the senior person in the same way that he now is abusing Winslow. I mean, I think that that's something that would happen anyway. I mean, we were in the military. We have some sense of what that's like. <laughs> right. And and I think that that's fun for backstory. Maybe that informed Defoe's performance in those scenes or maybe led to the way that Eggers directed those scenes to give us that sense of not knowing, of did Wake kill the last lighthouse keeper is he pretending all of this is is any of any of this real i think what eggers is driving at is more of the way that these identities are constantly in danger of being exposed to one another and the fear of that and what it means for the other person to to carry that truth when they're out of this situation when they're back in civilization um but then also about the way that the power dynamic is static, except when they're drunk, which is kind of your classic explosion of the id or the uh, the the inner unconscious coming to light. So that's a big part of it as well, is that it doesn't actually matter what is true of either of these characters because the dynamic they formed is deadly. It's always going to end in death for one or both of them. And then finally, he's presenting this contrast between the way that tradition can deform or inform rules and the way that rules after a certain context no longer apply to a situation. Uh, and so all of these things are also in play with these characters as well. The backstory for Tommy matters a lot because it informs a lot of the symbols and confusing imagery that Tommy's dealing with, the younger one. But the back the backstory of Wake doesn't really matter because he is uh, a tyrant and his backstory is always true regardless of which version it is because he can't handle having told a lie or being accused of being a liar, which is where the breakdown happens at the end of the movie, the main confrontation. Right. So before we get into the, the, the readings here, the readings and interpretations, let, I'll just sum up just to, to make things clear for both ourselves and for listeners that we don't think that there's anything supernatural going on in this story, that this is really a story about uh, Winslow going mad in a sort of fictional Lovecraftian sense of what it means to go mad, that he's seeing things, he's misunderstanding things, he's you know not drunk, he's poisoning his 
brain with kerosene sort of moonshine and so on, but that there is nothing supernatural going on in this story, that this is a, a madness story, not a mythos story, though we will still talk about some mythos things. But let's start with the sexuality. Let's do that first, right? We've talked already about there's a lot of masturbation in this movie. There's a lot of sexual tension between these two characters here. And, uh, you know, thinking in Freudian terms, there's a lot of repression of that as as well. Also, the lighthouse is explicitly meant to be phallic imagery. This is something that even appears in the script for the, the film, that the lighthouse is going to look phallic. It's going to be, it's intended to be a phallic symbol. So this is a reading that Eggers wants us to, to have. That's right. And and we see, and, and I think you pointed out really well, and, and throughout our discussion, throughout our talking through the recap of the movie, have pointed out a lot of the moments of the confused notion of the sexual identities of these characters, where they locate eroticism in their own being is uh, kind of all over the place. And when they're drunk is the only time they can really ex- explore this aspect of themselves. And also I think the imagery of the first half of the movie being about closing the doors, keeping everything inside, and then everything being out in the open, the storm reveals all sort of is uh, meant to be about this sort of confrontation of the synthesis of these modes, uh, the, the confrontation that results in synthesizing these kind of conflicts of identity that both of these characters have. Uh, they do talk about, you know, women every once in a while, but there's a scene where Robert Pattinson asks Willem Dafoe if he's ashamed about lying with a woman. Um, and then they have this odd scene when they're when they're in this almost post-coital position with Willem Dafoe laying his head on Robert Pattinson's lap and Robert Pattinson's arm is kind of around him. And they have this pillow talk, really, about who they really are. And it's when they start talking about who they really are that we get the melding of identities. Robert Pattinson says, Robert Pattinson says I'm Thomas. And Willem Dafoe says, no, I'm Thomas. And there's just more and more merging of identity that is... Um, a kind of resolution to the the homoeroticism that is suffused throughout the movie. But I will say, I don't think it's meant to be entirely about that. More that it's an exploration of desire, of the need for another human being. Though both these men clearly need one another, they are in a codependent relationship, their loneliness and isolation is allowing for a new sort of space for them to be drunk enough to maybe confront these aspects of their personality. But I think it would be, I think it would do a disservice to the movie to make this entirely what the movie's about. Right. I don't think that this is the the motive for the murder, even though I, 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 raised the question earlier if uh, that I think we should talk about a little bit or think about a little bit of of whether or not this is a pattern of behavior with Winslow or the, the Robert Pattinson character maybe we, we should say that he has killed the object of his sexual desire though the male object of his sexual desire who also happens to be his boss before I don't think that that's true that's not the reading that I prefer here I don't think that this is a story about someone struggling with repressed homosexuality and murdering because of it that is not what I think this movie is about at all and in fact I think that a lot of the the homoeroticism that we see in the movie is 
about, as as you point out, Brandon, just this this longing for any kind of intimacy, longing for companionship, this codependency on each other, because a lot of it is actually wrapped up in a longing for domesticity, right? There's a reason that the thing that that causes Wake to level this Cthulhu-esque curse on Winslow is being told that his cooking is terrible, right? That is an insult that he can't deal with. The 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 dancing and the the singing, right? The meals, right? All of this is really wrapped up in domesticity. In a, it is it is two men who have lived lives of isolation, of far not just from a home, but far from civilization. That they've had these what I guess we could characterize as lonely wilderness jobs who would like to be able to find a way to go home. And in fact, the the one thing that we really know about Winslow's motivation, about why he's decided to take this job, is that what he wants is to make enough money uh, from doing this job for a short period of time to go somewhere where he can afford to buy some land and build a home, right? This is his dream, is constructing a home. So I think this is all really wrapped up in a yearning for domesticity. I think that's really well put. I, I, I couldn't agree with that statement more. And it's it's really a main theme of the movie. We get these weird scenes with Willem Dafoe kind of knitting with his glasses on. And the one way in which their power dynamic does shift is between the role of lover and beloved, even though during the workday, during the, the daytime, their power dynamic is static. They do kind of shift between these roles of of love it and lover and beloved, or even the domestic roles that we normally attribute to to male or female in some ways. Well, let's move into talking about myth and and mythos now. I mean, we've talked a little bit already about how much Greek myth is in here. Uh, Poseidon, Triton. Proteus and Prometheus. And I, I think Proteus and Prometheus, is, as you pointed out already, Brandon, really dominate the last act of this film. And it's quite clear that Willem Dafoe is playing the role of Proteus and Robert Pattinson is playing the role of Prometheus, though the, these are not characters who normally inhabit each other's space. Maybe let's talk a little bit about who Proteus and Prometheus are before we think about what this tells us about the, the story. So both of these are gods in Greek mythology, ancient Greek mythology. We know of them from Homer and Hesiod and, and scores of other writers, both Greek and, and Roman, Greek and Latin. Proteus is often called the old man of the sea. Uh, Homer calls him this, though this is an epithet that Homer uses for lots of gods. It's not solely the possession of Proteus, though in later tradition it becomes kind of solely the possession of Proteus. And by later tradition, I mean like modern tradition, not later in antiquity. But of course, we think of Poseidon and, and Neptune as being the sea god, Poseidon, the Greek name, Neptune, the, the Roman name for this same figure. But But Mediterranean civilization or civilizations have lots of different sea gods because, well, it's a sea civilization, right? It's really important to them. And so they have gods for different aspects of the sea or just stories about different deities who reside in the sea. So Poseidon is the god of the sea. Proteus is a sea god, might be a way that we could differentiate there. And specifically, Proteus is a god of prophecy who lives on an island that has a lighthouse, right? So he's he's a lighthouse keeper. 
is essentially who Proteus is. This is the context in which we meet him in the Odyssey, which of course is completely about the sea. It's about being shipwrecked. It's about trying to get home. It's about actually a quest for domesticity. In fact, that's what the Odyssey is about uh, after a long period of time, uh, a long period of time in which lots of violence has been done by the protagonist as well. And so the other thing that we really should say about Proteus is that he's really kind of a minor character in ancient literature, but he becomes a really important figure in uh, early modernity, uh, the, the late 16th and early 17th century which is the period that is both the scientific revolution and the witchcraft craze. This is the period of Shakespeare and Milton, among others. In this period, Proteus becomes associated with uh, hermetic philosophy, which is to say ancient Egyptian magic. And so he gets wrapped up in figures like John Dee and also Isaac Newton. Milton does write about him. I think Shakespeare has invoked Proteus from time to time. That's probably in The Tempest, though, to be clear, I'm, I'm guessing there. But, you know, if you're going to invoke a sea god, it's probably The Tempest. Um, and 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 so he is seen as, and so he is seen also as not just a prophetic god or a god of prophecy, but also as a keeper of secrets, as the keeper of magic, and that uh, you're trying to gain access to his wisdom. You're trying to gain access to his lighthouse in order to gain magic. And so uh, we'll talk about Prometheus in a, a minute, but I think right there we can see how all of that is infused here in this film. All of that imagery and all of these ideas about Proteus show up in this film as both the lighthouse and the lighthouse keeper. Yeah, Proteus is somebody who, I, who I'm who i not as familiar with in terms of mythology or, or the, the way they... The way that he has been a different part of different mythologies or, you know, mysticisms or hermetic philosophy. Uh, that was really interesting for me to hear about prometheus though is is more well known for being punished by stealing uh fire or essentially like knowledge from the gods and so you have this sense where prometheus in this movie is stealing knowledge or yearning to take the knowledge from proteus um in order to achieve some higher state of being or unify his identity or whatever the Prometheus's actions were for humanity in mythology. He wanted to give fire to them so they could uh, become a better species. And then he's punished for it uh, where birds pluck out his innards every day. Um, there's also a little bit of Sisyphus in this movie, I think, too. The unending tasks that don't yield any results. Um, but I think if we're looking at the way Prometheus is in this movie... The Prometheus character, the younger character, is different from the Prometheus of myth is that the Prometheus of the lighthouse is in it for himself. He's acting out of entirely selfish motivation um, and his punishment is maybe worse because he doesn't get to come back from the dead and his reward for all of his, I don't know, Sisyphean tasks to, to mix <laughs> way too many mythological figures together is really his own death. So uh, there, there's kind of a different approach to who Prometheus is in, in this film. Yeah, we and we've talked about Prometheus before. We we talked about him quite a bit in our coverage of the masterpiece novella, The Death of Doctor Island, on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, where Gene Wolfe is dealing with engaging with the Promethean myth, which is much more common and 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 much more prevalent in 
modern art. And I, I, I don't know the, I don't know perfectly the literary tradition of that, but my feeling is that this goes back to the romantic poets and we've got, uh, Prometheus bound and Prometheus unbound, uh, that it's, it's the romantic poets who kind of revive him here for modernity. Though Shakespeare also does invoke Prometheus. I don't know. Shakespeare invokes everything, I guess. Right. But, <laughs> but this, but we, but he is definitely, but Prometheus is definitely famous for this business with the stealing fire and being a sort of selfless act. He comes to be equated with Christ, actually, uh, in late antiquity and in other, uh, well, really also in the Romanticism, right? This idea of someone who was trying to protect or save humanity from a sort of unjust and cruel God, right? Zeus, who wouldn't give humans fire so that they could be self-sufficient. So Prometheus is going to do this, even though he knows what the punishment will be. And the punishment is something that is, you know, well, it's literally visceral. I'm not trying to make a pun. It just is literally visceral, right? That uh, as things stands out, for for most of us. I think you hear the story once and this image is going to just be seared into your brain, right? This idea that he is chained up on a mountain and every morning uh, a bird, it's, it's an eagle, it's the eagle of Zeus, comes to the mountain and pecks out uh, his liver slowly over the course of the day. Then at night he heals up and it happens over and over again, right? So this is another place where there's the Christ parallel because he's, you know, the, the being chained up on the mountain is equated to being nailed to the, the cross and the enduring of the, the torment for us so that we can have um, either freedom or salvation, depending on whether we're talking about Prometheus or or Christ. But that image of the, the, the bird eating the viscera, right? Like that, man, This the way that this is depicted in the film is the best depiction I think I've ever seen of, of Prometheus. It was exactly how I envisioned this in my mind. It is a brilliant image. And this film is really full of of these brilliant artistic takes on mythology. And we've referenced, you know, one image that is just taken uh, from uh, a painting from 1904. So Eggers is definitely in conversation with these traditions of art and mythology. And there are other mythologies going on here too, or or maybe mythoses or, or mythoi, if you will, because there is also all this business with the sailors' legends, a lot of which is invoking Poseidon and Triton and Proteus and Prometheus as well. But we've got mermaids and we've got tentacles, right? So and and the idea of the uh, souls of sailors who have died at sea being reincarnated as seagulls. I mean, that just screams Coleridge here, right? They are gulls and not uh, albatrosses, but it just screams Coleridge. It screams all of these early modern sailors legends, which are not something I think that we very often think of as being a myth uh, or a mythology in the same way that we talk about Greek mythology. But I think here in this film, they certainly seem to have a lot of interplay and to be treated in, in equal terms. One thing I really appreciate about Eggers is, at least in the two films that he's made so far, is his exploration of the way that folklore in particular and traditional knowledge, you know, in a kind of epistemology of tradition, uh, non-empirical, that is to say, like knowledge that is not rooted from pure experience or the scientific process or uh, put in books or whatever like that, but knowledge that's passed down orally through tradition. How does that stuff even get going? And how does it continue when our senses tell us otherwise? And this is a big part of The Witch, uh, where a family homesteads like three days away from the nearest village after being too religious for the town. They get ostracized. 
and there's an actual witch in the woods. Uh, while there is a witch in the woods, part of what Eggers is really exploring is how that type of story gets generated, even before the revelation that the witch is real. Eggers is doing something similar in, in the same way in this film, where he's talking, where he's looking at the conflict between the book of rules and then, which is its own form of knowledge. This is the way thing, this is how you get things done in the best case scenario, and then how tradition comes about. Why do we bury a case of rum on the island? <laughs> you know, what, what's that for? Um, why do certain power dynamics develop but more importantly how do how does the folklore of the ocean come from isolation and time at sea what does somebody see at watch see on a mid-watch the, the watch of dread as willem dafoe calls it in the movie that causes them to tell us like a ghost story at some point you know to the next person and this is something we see in hamlet right like the two guys on mid-watch are being like well is the ghost out tonight and now you have a ghost story right <laughs> so it's it's how these moments of isolation of the awe of nature the awfulness of nature as the romantics would say really create and and fertilize the ground for folklore and it it's just something i love about what robert eggers has done with these last two stories i think the witch is much better in this regard but it's the same idea how does folklore come about and stay alive even though people may never experience the the thing that got the story going why is this type of knowledge so important what do we learn from it why where does it come from and of course like all morality tales the the tradition is right and the new rules are wrong you don't kill a bird even if you're starving why well here's a story why <laughs> because you're gonna end <laughs> up like prometheus you know so uh it's just I, it's just something i really appreciate about his uh, sensibility towards storytelling and at least one point of intersection here between the way that mythology and, and mythos are being used here and thinking about this story as being very much about sexuality is actually, again, in the realm of domesticity, right? That these these sailors' legends in particular are the, the mythos or the mythology of people who are trying to make sense of a world without any domesticity, a, a world that is dangerous, right? A world in which they would have all been better off if they had just been able to, if they had just been able to find a way to stay home, right? To to have a home, to have a family, to have a, a local community on solid ground the way that we're supposed to, but we've had to go out to the sea, and because we're out here where people don't really belong, we're now being exposed to this different system of the world, right? This different numinous system of the world, and we have to learn these new rules, and it's it's dangerous out here. So the last thing I the last thing I want to talk about, and I think this will wrap up the discussion for us, and then we'll talk about our, our favorite scenes a, a, little, a little bit, is one last bit of mythos here. I said earlier that this film had been presented to me as if it was a, a Lovecraftian mythos story, or at least a Lovecraftian monster story, that it was going to be about some tentacled creature living in the sea, possibly also about mermaids, and uh, two guys having to fight that off. That's clearly not what the movie is about, but 
I went into the movie thinking that's what it was. So on my first watch of it, that's what I was, I was waiting for that to happen. And so seeing the story unfold and, and being exposed to Willem Dafoe's weird relationship with the, the light and being up there naked, right? I'm thinking the whole time that he is a Cthulhu priest or something like that, that he is either intentionally or accidentally about to summon a monster for some reason, and then they're going to have to fight the monster and clean up that mess. That's 100% not what happens in the movie at all, but it really colored my whole reading of this as uh, as a type of Lovecraftian film. And I, I wondered if you saw any of that going in cold, because I don't think you went in with that sort of expectation. I, I had seen the previews. I had a similar experience to yours when I saw Parasite. Knowing what Bong Joon-ho had directed before, he's made monster movies and kind of murder mysteries and all, all sorts of stuff, and seeing the poster with you know people having... Uh, these black sensors over their eyes, like maybe they've been infected with a parasite in the name of the movie. I spent the whole movie waiting for the monsters to show up. And it, <laughs> I, won't, I won't say it diminished my experience of the movie, but I certainly had to reframe what I was doing, while, you know, like thinking about while I was watching it. Parasite's a great film, by the way. But um, I, I, maybe I knew a little bit more about this movie. I knew there was some mythos that was Lovecraftian mythos, especially that was going to be evoked. Um, I didn't really read about the movie before I saw it, uh, other than kind of being exposed to various things on the internet. And I did see the trailer the same way you did. But that was all so long ago, I had kind of written, I had kind of forgotten about this movie for a little while. I mean, it was loosely on my list. So I did go into it a little bit cold. But I also went into it not expecting too much or expecting anything and so it unfolded a little bit differently for me i was actually surprised with the level of mythic creatures you know the giant octopus the the mermaid things like that i was really surprised by their presence in the movie uh and that was my experience watching it so i wasn't waiting for uh the cthulhu priest to summon something and then robert eggers was going to have to figure out how to how to handle it uh, I, I was really more surprised by the inclusion of all of these strange elements than anything else. In the end, this felt more like it had the fingerprints of William Hope Hodgson on this than H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, there is maybe some Lovecraftian stuff going on, but this felt a lot more like the Sargasso Sea stories that we've taken a look at here on Elder Sign. Well, I guess we've only done one so far, but it felt a lot more like the way Hodgson writes about the sea and engages with the the culture of sailors, because he himself was a sailor, which is not something that Lovecraft ever, ever was. And I actually found myself envisioning that this is what happens next in From the Tideless Sea Part 1 when they are stranded in the Sargasso Sea on this ship alone. I mean, they're going to have a kid, so maybe that's going to help out. But, you know, this idea of two people uh, trapped on this island in the sea and there are some giant tentacles, right? We didn't get to the part where they've been there long enough to go mad. But uh, but maybe, that, maybe this is actually what From the Tideless Sea Part 2 is about, which hopefully we'll get to someday. Yeah, I mean, we definitely did talk about how From the Tideless Sea Part 1 is a tragedy, and even though it's not presented as one. Uh, so who knows what happens to that family, though. We made some guesses uh, in our episode of covering that story. Well, Brandon, you tipped your hand already, but let's talk about your favorite scene a little bit more. Well, I, I absolutely love that co- that scene where they're extremely drunk, uh, Robert Pattinson's character is talking about his past boss, but Willem Dafoe can't tell if he's talking about if Robert Pattinson is talking about 
the Willem Dafoe character or the past boss or whatever. Uh, and we already see that there's a kind of confusion in Robert Pattinson's experience of events. He's conflating a lot of timelines and it's just a, a bad time to be alive for both of them. They're very drunk and Robert Pattinson confronts Willem Dafoe about his cooking. And it starts out as this hilarious, you know, like domestic spat. And then it leads it ends with this terrible curse uh, that, that Willem Dafoe pronounces upon Robert Pattinson. And then the final bit of it is really the punchline where Robert Pattinson just says, uh, you know, have it your way. Yeah, your cooking's fine. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's a really funny scene. And the way the comedy and tension work together, the performances are incredible. Uh, it's just a scene that I love. I will say there's one other scene that I want to point out in the movie. It's so brief, but it's the only moment of dramatic irony we get in the film, which I think clues us into the way that these folkloric myths and stuff get going. There's a shot of Robert Pattinson in bed and the seagull comes and pecks on the window. And by the time Robert, Robert Pattinson looks up, he sees the seagull has gone. So he's left the question of like, what was that? You know, after a couple of weeks of isolation, you can maybe do a scientific analysis of the most likely thing that's happened. But it's the only time in the movie where we see, and I think a really objective perspective that provides the audience more information than the characters of the movie have and clues us into how experiences can be subjectified, uh, subjectivized and twisted to fit a different kind of maybe more supernatural or mythological narrative. And uh, that I'll just throw that in as a second favorite scene because we didn't get to talk about it. Well, my, my favorite scene was the curse scene as well. I probably should have come armed with a uh, <laughs> a backup scene as well, knowing that that, that was almost certainly going to be yours because it is really, I think, the highlight of the film. I really just want to take that speech, actually, and like make that my new alarm sound. <laughs> It'll just wake me up every morning. It'll really motivate me to try to reach over and get that to, to turn off before it goes on for too long. I'll just mention a couple other things that I did really like about the film or like visual things I really liked about the film. I did love this reenactment of the painting hypnos as well the promethean death scene really is gonna haunt me for the rest of my days but also the footage of the storm you you had suggested that maybe that was stock footage and, and maybe it was but whether or not it was in either case it was gorgeous it was something that really uh appealed to the the, the inner jack london uh, uh, that i have right this desire to see the, the wilderness to see the power of nature uh, made me want to live on an island and go through a, a nor'easter, which I, I I think probably after doing it, I would say, yeah, I won't do that again. But it really <laughs> just seemed so impressive to me. It was just really beautiful photography. Yeah, I think they must have used uh, miniatures for the scenes of the waves overtaking the whole lighthouse and the, the house that they live in and really crashing over the whole island. Uh, but some of the shots of the sea, I wasn't sure... You know, it could have been stock footage or they could have done some really exceptional photography. But I think they must have used miniatures for uh, some of those shots of the storm just being so much and the ocean being so much more powerful than their kind of little ramshackle home that they had built to live in. Well, now that we're talking about how they actually built the sets and stuff like that, which is of interest to almost no one uh, except me, maybe that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. 
And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. That's also where you can contact us to commission a bonus episode on something you would like us to cover. Please join us on the Clay Temple Media Forum or on Reddit. Uh, and we maybe had kind of a, a hot take on whether or not anything supernatural or numinous was going on in this story and came down pretty hard on the side of no, uh, this is maybe something we're building a reputation for doing. <laughs> Actually, uh, we would love to hear arguments uh, going the other way. I think that would be a lot of, a lot of fun. And again, we just want to say a huge thanks to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. We love doing things like this, and it's uh, it's always important for us to get that kind of support as well. So we're going to be back next week with The Rose Garden by M.R. James. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>